Hey, so, uh, uh, 326, uh, uh, what, what's going on? 326 is a COVID patient in room 326. Dr. Ivan Melendez is getting an update on his condition. You know, I, I, I spent an hour with a family last night and they said that uh, he was going to be DNR. I mean, we have DNR. Do not resuscitate if a patient's so breathing DNR, stops or their heart stops the beating. Is he, is, he, is he still with us? Or Tough decisions are being made every day by hundreds of families in the Rio Grande Valley on the U.S. border at the southern tip of Texas. Okay. Um, so, but during the DRR phase, we still just kept them comfortable. All comfort measures, did a lot of hand holding and then a lot of talking. And is he, he's getting his morphine and he's getting his, his di uh, mental diazepine, so he's, he's at peace? Yeah. That's okay. how you care for a COVID patient when all your other options have been exhausted so and they're still not getting better. Okay. All right, do me a favor, can you get him on the phone for me so I can talk to him? Dr. Melendez wants right. to talk to patient 326's family again. I'm exhausted and I'm a little bit emotionally saturated. Uh, you can only take, you know, so many tragedies and before you just, you're just tired. <laughs> you're exhausted physically and emotionally. The Rio Grande Valley is home for Melendez. Even the patients he doesn't know and isn't related to are his family. And sometimes his patients are his friends and family. But it's a surreal experience. Last week, I put someone on life support that was my sixth grade school teacher. And a couple of weeks ago, I, I had to, uh, to, participate in the death of my mom's best friend so so these are people that we know that we've grown with that have been part of our life and covid has taken cruel aim at this underserved under-resourced region of the united states the people of the rio grande valley feel like they're on their own and in many ways they are and then you're immediately concerned with the weight of the responsibility that you have. Have I turned every rock? Have I ch chased every possibility? Is there anything at all that we left out? And so uh, you know, without even processing it, that when he dies, a part of you dies too. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. This week, the COVID emergency in the Valley. One night last week, Dr. Melendez started his shift at a hospital where he's taken over some patients from another doctor. Are, are you taking care of this patient? So, you know, I came in here two days ago and I didn't recognize who he was. Uh -huh. and we've known each other for 30 years. Melendez tells the nurse he knows this patient from back when they were fresh out of college. Melendez was a new ER doctor. His patient was a new ER nurse. He took it off, he says, Damn it, Melendez, don't you recognize me? <laughs> he could barely say it. Dr. Melendez recorded himself during his overnight shifts at the COVID unit. We're not saying the hospital's name to protect the identities of the nurses and the patients. So Melendez is not only a doctor in the valley. He is what is called the health authority in Hidalgo County. Each county in Texas has a health authority, a medical doctor, who's appointed to administer state and local laws relating to public health. He describes what's happening in the valley right now as a tsunami. Crashing waves of patients are dying after spending hours in ambulances while waiting for beds in the hospital, dying in beds in the ER, in hallways, or in open COVID wards he describes as warehouses. Some make it to a room. 
Sometimes he knows those patients, like his nurse friend. So I just walked in, and when I'm there, I see this this uh, human being that's bloated. Uh, he's swollen in his face and his belly and his leg. He has a BiPAP mask, which is a mask that covers your entire face, which is attached to a machine that blows air to it, forces air into it. And and so I couldn't see his face. I couldn't identify him. So all of a sudden, he just lifted his hand, popped the mask off, looked at me, and uh, and used uh, some selective words and said, XXX Melendez, don't you even recognize me? And when I saw him and I heard his voice and, as you say, saw his eyes, and I said, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> and he says, yeah, look at me. I'm going to die. And, of course, you mean, say, no, you're not. No, you're not. He could barely say it. So um, is he doing better today? Uh, yes. Is this your first day with him? No. Okay. Do you feel better? Is that you putting the hands up? Can you talk or it takes too much hair out of you? You can talk. Dr. Melendez talks to his old friend like the medical professional he is. Actually, I stopped the antiviral because a lot of people, the antiviral, they just don't do, I don't know what it is about it, but they don't do well. So uh, I stopped the antiviral, I increased your steroids, I put a new antibiotic, and quite frankly, yesterday you looked like you were going to give up, but today you look a lot stronger. Do you feel better? Good. Melendez sees dozens of patients every day, and in the Rio Grande Valley right now, dozens of patients are dying of COVID every day. Two days ago, we had 49 people dying, 49. Yesterday, we had 33. I think today we have 37. Our obituaries used to be a page, another three pages, which is name and dates. We're having record deaths. See, it's not just the disease that's the problem, though it's bad. It's not the number of people getting sick right now, though that number is dizzyingly high. It's that hospitals and clinics in the Rio Grande Valley don't have the resources to meet the patient demand. But then they never did. Melendez sees another patient. Let's, let's see, you know, he's not getting any better, man. It's no, been days. No, he's not. So let's get a blood gas because we may, we may have to intubate it. Can you get a blood gas for me? Dr. Melendez, I am not going to be able to get that blood why, gas Why? Why not? What the hell? Why? We are having problems. We are short with respiratory therapy. They, we don't have the manpower in the lab. This is obviously a problem. So how can I change my oxygen supplementation if I don't have... A blood gas. How can I give a diabetic meds if I don't have a glucose? How can I give a blood pressure med without a blood pressure guide? What are we doing about that? We can do just a simple, but the critical, saying for ABG, we don't have the resource power okay. to so get it. Decisions still must be made, even without the needed information. What we do is suggest that we put on mechanical intubation, but they have to know that's only 10% survival. So we have two choices. He can stay on this BiPAP mode and continue to be slaughtered by that air going in and out, or we can sedate them and put them on a life support machine, which will decrease the survivability, but will make them more comfortable. Yeah. So get them on the phone and let me know, okay? Okay, we will get it. Melendez needs Thank to make you. so many decisions every day while flying blind this way. He uses his phone to fold families into the decision-making process. He says during this pandemic, phones have become essential equipment for doctors and nurses. So you see these folks that you've been following for days, and you know their stories, and you've been calling the families on the phone, phones now have become as essential as a stethoscope for doctors and nurses so that they can communicate with their family, not only the doctor and the nurse, but also the patient. 
these conversations can be so hard. Well, how's your heart? How's your, how's your soul? Dr. Melendez is back with his friend, the nurse, and gives him a message. I talked to your wife yesterday and she, she, she cried for a while, but I put her at peace. I told her we're going to make changes. In that conversation with his friend's wife, Melendez told her, You know, the nurse did tell you correctly that he's been getting sicker and sicker and sicker. But what she's not telling you is that I still see that he has a fighting spirit. And what you don't know is that there's still a lot of options that we haven't used. And absolutely, you need to prepare. You need to prepare because he's very, very sick. But that doesn't mean it's time to give up. He's not giving up, and he needs you to be strong. So when you talk to him, you need to be a source of strength. And we'll do prone, okay? All right, man. You know, you know how much I care about you, right? Okay. I don't hug you because you know how that goes. <laughs> no hug. There. There's a code blue. There's, there's always a code blue, it seems. This code blue, though, is in a room we visited earlier, room 326. Yeah, we're, I was at another code also downstairs, and I was coming back up, and I heard your room number, 326. And I said, 326? Are you kidding me? But I'm glad it was just, just that. So there was more you than your body, so that's okay. All right, man. We'll be watching you, okay? We'll give you a little setter so you can rest. Okay, so right. the patient with the do not resuscitate order is still holding on, so that's good news. Dr. Melendez thinks a lot about what his patients are experiencing. He's had COVID. He was pretty sick and he needed extra oxygen, but he didn't need the hospital. He fought it out at home. He's so grateful for that. The patients he's fighting for now aren't having the same kinds of experiences. With COVID in particular, it is a horrible death. It is not a peaceful death. It's not the type of death experience that I had. With COVID, it's a cruel death. You know, we're designed to be with others. We're, we're like the canines, the wolf packs. We're designed to be in packs. And yet, you die alone with COVID. Our natural reaction is for us to form bands and to be with each other, to console ourselves. But with this, this disease, it's the complete opposite. We're being told, and it, it, it's the truth, we have to be apart. So just the, the nature of the human being to separate from others when you're really sick, it so goes against the grain of everything that we are and everything we've been for the last 200,000 years that we've existed. And so you already have that separation uh, of family, of loved ones from the patient. Everybody dies alone. While he watches his old friend fight for his life, Melendez reflects on how lucky he was with his disease. And it solidifies his intention to, quote, break every mountain to save him. And that's what it may take. On this night, his friend almost died. Dr. Melendez calls his wife again. Uh, Sandy, as I was saying, um, uh, so your husband uh, got tired and he pulled off the apparatus. And as he pulled out the apparatus, um, his oxygen saturation comes down. So they called a rapid response on him so that uh, because he wasn't breathing, quite frankly, he, was, he looked like he was gonna die. Um, so he had about 20 people in the room I went in there and basically uh, asked him if he wanted to live. He said yes. Uh, then we, we exchanged some, some cuss words because he, you know, uh, between you and I, I called him a dumbass. And then he, he kind of started laughing. 
started laughing a little bit. But he's super, super confused because he keeps taking the machine off. So we're going to put someone on there to watch him. Uh, we've given him some increased medications, but he's not in any position to be pulling the apparatus off. He almost died tonight. No, you can't stay with him because uh, it's uh, very strict here. Even, unfortunately, people that are going to heaven, they don't, they don't let people come in. I'm going to get the, once he calms down a little bit, I'll have the nurse uh, get you on video phone so at least you can watch him and, uh, and get, you know, he can see you. I'm going to give him some sedation. That way he can sleep, or not sleep, but rest a little bit. Uh, because that apparatus is quite bothersome, but um, he's getting extra steroids, he's getting extra oxygen. But I just want you to know that uh, that he uh, it was a close one for him. You know, he he pulled that that damn apparatus off. So, but he's back, okay? Okay, he's back. Such a close right. call. Doctor Melendez goes back to talk to his friend. Almost committed suicide accidentally. Um, got just full of despair gave up and pulled the apparatus off, but he's, he's back to normal. Um, Albert, I talked to your wife, and she said to stop being a, such a dumbass and stop pulling that off. Once we stabilize you, then we're gonna go ahead and give you a little a little Ativan to relax you so it's easier for you, okay? Is there anything you wanna say? So you had yeah, don't even try to talk then. He, he's not strong enough to talk. So uh, we'll go from there and, uh, and let me get some orders going. Thanks. Dr. Melendez leaves his patient, but his friend does not leave his mind. The doctor still has hope and he still fights for him. But this disease is capricious and he has no idea what he'll find the next time he visits this room. So... Hidalgo County, there on the Texas border in the Rio Grande Valley, has been designated by the Health Resources and Services Administration as a medically underserved area, which means it has too few primary care providers, high infant mortality, high poverty, a high elderly population, or all of the above. During the pandemic, that means it doesn't have enough doctors, nurses, enough specialists like lung specialists. It doesn't have enough oxygen to send patients home to free up staffed hospital beds. It doesn't have enough staffed hospital beds. There are also no public hospitals in Hidalgo County or Cameron County next door. So how did the Valley get here? And what is behind this COVID surge? Well. There are a bunch of factors from resources to politics to the census. We'll start out on the beach. Our reporter, Dominic Anthony Walsh, traveled to South Padre Island, about two hours east of Hidalgo County. So looking both north on the beach and south on the beach, there's people as far as the eye can see, definitely hundreds and hundreds of people. Not quite as many as we saw, you know, reported on Memorial Day weekend, uh, as well as the weekend that the beaches opened back up, and not quite as intense as that one kind of infamous report about the topless Jeep weekend, whatever it was called. After several weeks of being stuck inside, thousands have flocked here to Bolivar Peninsula to make the most of their time while out. I've been in quarantine, and like, I need to get out and party. Woo! That's from 12 News Now out of Beaumont. Bolivar Peninsula is further north near Houston, but similar scenes played out on South Padre as beaches reopened. Huge gatherings in the midst of a pandemic. 
but back then, cases weren't surging as they are now. There's still lots of people. It seems like there are a lot of families, but also definitely some groups of young people um, who you know, may or may not be related, but could definitely just be large friend groups. And the groups themselves are socially distanced, but a lot of them do consist of more than 10 people for sure. And definitely no masks in sight. In May, people started flocking to this area after Governor Greg Abbott superseded local leaders and reopened the economy. And that has led to dire consequences for the entire valley. Our first case was March 21st. We opened up on May 1st as per the request of the uh, governor. Uh, well, um, let me restate that as per the, the mandate of the governor to open up on uh, May 1st. Um, and uh, the numbers have changed dramatically. So that's Dr. Melendez again talking about the situation in Hidalgo County. He and other leaders there, they felt like they had things under control. Then the governor stepped in and opened just about everything. We went from eight people in the hospital, more or less, to uh, 1,100. We went from 12 deaths in two and a half months to 49 deaths alone yesterday. And we went from two to three people ventilated, uh, and now we have about 150 on ventilators. So the numbers have uh, grown dramatically during the last month and continue to increase. That's our current situation. So in case you didn't catch that there, Algo County had 49 deaths on a single day compared to 12 deaths over two and a half months. Now more than 450 deaths total. So we asked Governor Greg Abbott's communications director, John Whitman, about this. Locals saying they had the situation well in hand, but Governor Abbott overruling them, which they believe led to this spike in cases. Well, I'll I'll, I'll take issue with your premise. The reality is is that we opened the state on May 1, and for almost a full month, we saw no uptick. And then on Memorial Day, um, we did see folks getting together, um, you know, and we did see people go out and start to congregate and things like that. We saw an increase in the number of cases. Sure. So the first reopening order happened in early May. Retail stores, restaurants, malls, they were all allowed to open at reduced capacity. But it was just one in a series of phased orders from the governor that overrode local officials. And we didn't just see people congregating on Memorial Day out of nowhere. People were able to gather in those high-risk settings because the governor had reopened the state. Now, when cases started surging, the governor shut down bars again and reduced capacity elsewhere. And he implemented statewide mask orders in July when the situation was clearly out of control. So the governor will continue to follow the data and listen to the doctors and do everything he can um, to uh, to corral the coronavirus and, and get it under control. So trying to save jobs, the state went full speed ahead. And here's the thing about that data. Most of the key indicators are lagging indicators. Cases follow reopening by one to two weeks. Hospitalizations follow cases by 10 days. And then deaths follow hospitalizations by several weeks. The state plowed through the reopening despite some early red flags and did not take time to track the results of each action. Many local leaders in the Valley didn't want to reopen back in May. The governor made them. Now their hospitals are at capacity and their deaths are surging. So here we are. 
let's head on over to Willacy County with 20,000 people. It's the valley's least populated county. So we, we're having the same issues that the rest of the valley and the country's having is, is we're having a tremendous increase in, in uh, uh, positive cases of COVID. That's Frank Torres, the emergency management coordinator for Willacy County. He also oversees the county's EMS department and he helps coordinate the hospital response across all counties in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Go over here. TPR reporter Dominic Anthony Walsh stopped by to chat with him. We're going to be in here for a little bit, Russell. When Frank Torres says a tremendous increase in positive cases, he means it. And Willacy County alone, confirmed COVID-19 cases have risen by about 500% in the space of a month. There are now more than 550 cases here. And that's a big problem for any place, but especially a place like Willacy County. We're a rural community. We have no hospitals in our community. Uh, so our EMS is all that our community has uh, as far as uh, medical uh, care that's available to them. So we transport to our patients to Harlingen. Uh, to, we have two hospitals in Harlingen. And unfortunately, our, all of our hospitals are at 100 plus capacity. And Harlingen isn't exactly next door. That's right. It's about a half hour drive. So at least an hour long round trip for these EMS crews. And once they get to the hospital. We're having to deal with uh, six to 12 hour waits at the emergency room with our patients, uh, which is causing some issues for for uh, uh, staffing. And, and then uh, also with my crews being exposed to the virus with the contaminated patient for so long in the back of a six by 12 ambulance. He says 11 of his 44 person staff have tested positive in the past week alone, so they can't work. The other crews are dealing with these wait times, so they're tied up throughout the day. The staff is stretched thin and there have already been some close calls as a result. So we had every ambulance in our fleet on calls on one particular day last week. And we got another call that came in for a four-year-old that was not breathing. And, and at that time, I had five of, of my ambulances parked at the hospitals in Harlingen waiting to unload patients. So uh, we sent a supervisor in a, in a supervisor vehicle uh, to start working on a four-year-old child that was not breathing that uh, had nothing to do with COVID. Uh, and uh, we're able to uh, res resuscitate the child and, and get, him, get him to the, to the hospital uh, with the mutual aid ambulance. So those are the types of situations that, that you run into. So it's not just COVID that you have to worry about. COVID is, is what's creating the problem or, or, or the main issue. Uh, but uh, it, it's not just COVID patients that are being affected. It's, it's all your other patients as well. Right, this, this. This is why healthcare professionals have been telling us since February about the importance of flattening the curve. Exactly. What Frank Torres just described is an overwhelmed healthcare system. This just isn't sustainable. Imagine if another call came in while that supervisor was out, and this past weekend, a hurricane hit South Texas. Resources are already stretched beyond the limit by the pandemic, and then a hurricane comes along. Yeah, I gotta say, as, as a mother, that story made my blood run cold and my eyes just sort of filled with tears. I, I can't imagine my baby not breathing and not being able to get into the hospital. Uh, I'm so glad everyone was okay there. But, but this kind of thing can't keep happening. Yeah, and Torres says he asked the governor's office for help. He and other local officials asked for a field hospital. 
The state has sent a lot of staff, but Torres says it isn't enough. So we don't need more staffing right now. What we need is more staffing and more beds, which we don't have because our hospitals are running at 100% of capacity. Have they been responsive? Is there any indication that you're going to get those beds? So the last report we got was that, that uh, we had been, our request for an, a field hospital had been turned down. So uh, by, by our governor. Uh, and, was and there a reason given? No. Uh, so, yeah, I'm happy to respond to that. John Whitman again. He's the governor's communication director we heard from earlier. The reality is this, is that the governor simply uh, said he did not want to put Texans on 141-degree asphalt in the middle of July. And as a result, um, we, op- we are opting for what we believe is a much better option, which is to get uh, folks into hotels to create um, more hospital bed capacity. Whitman says there isn't a definitive timeline on obtaining these hotels, but this is something that local officials support. A big thing I heard from doctors is that hospitals do have too many people who don't necessarily need a hospital bed, but can't go home because they're still recovering. If and when the hotels become available, they should help free up some beds. Okay, so, Dominic Anthony Walsh. Bonnie Petrie. So while you were documenting the surge in the valley, you stumbled upon another story. Yes, I did. I realized what's happening in the valley is more than a medical story. It's a census story. The story is about the data behind the lack of hospital resources. So a quick refresher, the census happens every 10 years. So here we go, in our patented Wayback Machine. Yes, yes, yes. This is from the Bureau of the Census's archives. This film is from 1940. It's a very patriotic promo for the census and for America in general. It's more than 130 million free people. It's 33 million homes. It's 7 million farms. It's vast panorama of other resources. All of those numbers, they come from the census. But the census is not just an exercise in counting, right? No, 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 not at all. The census informs apportionment. How many congressional seats each state gets, as well as how many electoral votes each state gets. The population counts also play a massive role in how federal funding is divvied up. As NPR's national correspondent and census expert Hansi Lo Wang often says, the census is about money and power. Right, so power from congressional seats and electoral votes and money for education, health care, lots of other things. Yes, so the apportionment and appropriation processes ideally are based on reality. Unbiased facts to measure markets for business and the farmer, the plans of school and health officials, the needs of local governments. So is the census reflective of any kind of reality? Mm, not entirely. Oh, that's the story. Correct. For you cannot know your country unless your country knows you. So back to Willacy County. No hospitals, a thinly stretched staff of EMS crews, and a census response rate of less than 40%. Whenever we apply for any federal funding, uh, then if only 40% of the population uh, reported themselves in the census, then we're only going to get 40% of the funding that we're, that we're due. Frank Torres again. 
uh, unfortunately. Yes, it's, it's a very serious situation. So there are no hospitals in Willacy County, but there are also no public hospitals in the valley, period. They're all private. And population plays a big role in where public hospitals are built. If an area's population is dramatically undercounted, it's less likely to get a public hospital. But why is the valley undercounted? Torres and others point to the immigration system in the United States as the root of the problem. In particular, the law enforcement component. Estimates vary, but anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 unauthorized immigrants live in the valley. Whenever the area faces an emergency, like Hurricane Hannah, requiring an evacuation, they face a tough choice. The Rio Grande Valley is the only region in the continental United States that has to go through an immigration status inspection point to get out of harm's way. You cannot leave the valley without having to go through a, an, an immigration status checkpoint. To the southwest of Willacy County is Hidalgo County, the most populated area in the valley. The response rate here is about 47%. Better than the rest of the valley, but still 10 points below the state average and 15 points below the national average. Local officials believe Hidalgo County was undercounted by at least 25,000 people in 2010. So they've stepped up outreach efforts. So I just pulled over to the side of the road on a 10th Street uh, headed north. Uh, just, just before it intersects with Interstate 2, the southernmost interstate highway in the country. Uh, across the four-lane road, I can actually see a Border Patrol pickup truck going through a, uh, the drive-through of a Starbucks. And uh, you know, right next to the Border Patrol truck, kind of extending over this four-lane street, uh, there's a banner. It says, Censo Se Condado, Census 2020, Be Counted. Is this, I think this is it. Edinburgh is the county seat of Hidalgo, and it's where the doctor's hospital at Renaissance is. There's We're at the Edinburgh Conference Center. Administrators take calls, coordinate logistics, and track important data. So why are hospital administrators set up at this conference center? Well, it's our incident command center. Whenever you have an emergency or disaster, you're supposed to have a, you have an incident command center that runs everything. And so as a consequence, uh, they have to have a place to meet and be able to socially distance. Carlos Cardenas is chairman of the hospital's board. We walk away from the command center and into a massive, dark auditorium. So the lights aren't on in here, but, uh, but this is a nice, quiet place. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone turns a light on for us as we're setting up, and the stage becomes visible. Oh, and those lights just came on, and I can see... I guess this is additional surge capacity over here. You know, I couldn't see the room at all before, and then I noticed all the beds on the stage. When, when, did, when, did, those, when did those show up? Oh, we've had those here for a while. And uh, it's, it's there. Uh, we've been collecting uh, uh, equipment, getting equipment in, et cetera, as we continue to uh, try to add capacity. And there are about a the dozen beds stored on stage. Right now, we're using and staff also use this sure. room to create personal She's protective equipment. And in the early days, supply lines were pretty tight. We had very few, relatively few, N95 masks, for example. Uh, and so we became very creative. Outpatient staff were sent to this auditorium to sew masks, which are still in use. Carlos Cardenas says they're quality masks, but they aren't N95s. 
And so why don't they have a gigantic stockpile of PPE just set aside? Well, it's expensive. Those extra beds on the stage, expensive. Repurposing existing units to accommodate COVID patients, also expensive. And having an accurate census count in 2010 would have offset some of that expense. In the Rio Grande Valley, uh, it was estimated that uh, in, in 2010 that we were undercounted by about 300,000 people. The Rio Grande Valley, if it were accurately counted, could gain as much as $473 million annually uh, or $4.7 billion over the next 10 years. And that's pretty significant. Local, state, and federal officials have been hammering a couple messages about the census home. First, that it's important. And second, the responses are anonymous. El censo cuenta todos los que vivimos en este país, incluyendo aquellos que no pensarías que también cuentan. This is a Spanish language ad from the Census Bureau. It's like a more modern, more targeted version of that 1940s promo. It says all persons in the country are counted in the census. And under the historical interpretation of the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, that should be true. The Trump administration has thrown the 2020 census into another political storm. President Trump Last week while I was in the Valley, this story broke. The Constitution says those numbers should include every person living in this country. But the president wants unauthorized immigrants to be excluded from that count. Here's Carlos Cardenas. So if you're undocumented or documented, it doesn't matter if if your child fell and hit their head and needs emergency services. Uh, we're here to, to, to take care of those people. And so in order to be able to have the appropriate funds for a particular area, you need to know what your population is, documented or not. This memo is already in court, and it's reminiscent of earlier drama around the census. A trial begins today that may determine whether a controversial new question will stay on the 2020 census. The question is as follows, quote, is this person a citizen of the United States? Six lawsuits have been filed. That question was rejected by the Supreme Court and is not on the 2020 census. But all the news and rhetoric around the census, citizenship and immigration has a chilling effect on response rates. Yeah, it does. I think the Trump administration has done a number of actions um, to, to make this harder and to make an undercount more likely. Lewis Brown is an associate professor at University of Texas Health School of Public Health in El Paso. UT Health received a grant from the Hogg Foundation to work on improving response rates in undercounted areas. El Paso is another region where response rates are historically low. Brown and his colleagues partner with community organizers to reach out to undercounted communities. The reasons for the low response rates in El Paso are similar to the reasons in the Valley. Well, so there's a lot of reasons. Rhetoric from the Trump administration, also fear that accessing services will impact future efforts to obtain documentation. But the primary overriding fear? I mean, there's a lot of deportations, and so people are worried about deportations and being deported. But I think that the important thing to remember is that doing the census is totally separate from any of that. And the the, the, the data collection is confidential, 100%. Public health professionals and local officials had a lot of plans to address these fears directly, in-person events, community outreach, and then a pandemic hit. It's made it harder for sure. With the extended October deadline approaching, the Valley's response rate is still below 50%, and there's a lot of money at stake. Earlier, 
uh, I mentioned the billions of dollars that gets distributed. If you if you think about it on a per person basis, it works out to about two thousand dollars per person per year. And since the census will be used over ten years, that's twenty thousand dollars per person that that's at stake here. And that's just in normal times. Right now, trillions of dollars are flying around. Without an accurate population count, the valley is again being shorted on these relief bills, even though it's one of the hardest hit areas in the country. Across the Rio Grande Valley, the uncounted population means the loss of billions, with a B, of dollars. That loss has hampered the ability of hospitals and local governments to prepare for this pandemic. The same pandemic that is now hampering the ability of community organizers to get people counted in the 2020 census, meaning another 10 years of underfunding. So when the government can't do enough, community organizations must step in and pick up the slack. Our reporter, Michael Trevino, picks it up from here. In San Juan, Texas, just outside of McAllen, hundreds of cars inch along Cesar Chavez Road. Organizers and volunteers in red stand in front of the crawling line, directing folks toward the gravel driveway for La Unión del Pueblo Entero, or Lupe for short. A young woman sits in her car. She's pregnant, sitting with the windows down, fanning herself. How long have you been in line? I start at 11, like 45, because they're going to start at 12. And what time is it now? One <laughs> It's hot today, isn't Yeah, it? it is. But the stifling heat and the crawling line of cars are bearable enough today. Lupe is distributing hundreds of bags of essential items for Colonia residents to help them ride out the double impact of a pandemic and a recession. We're giving out uh, Pampers. We're giving out um, uh, hand sanitizer. Lupe's executive director, Juanita Valdez-Cox. We're giving out rice. We're giving out beans, pinto beans and black beans. And we're giving out uh, cornmeal to make corn tortillas. Lupe has always advocated for the needs of the surrounding Colonia communities. But the pandemic has changed those needs. Colonias are made up mainly of a Latino immigrant working class population. This is their first food drive. The system is quick and contactless. Cars drive up. Volunteers place the plastic bags filled with essential items in the trunk or back seat. And the line keeps moving. One car after another, after another. This is going to be about oh, three, 4,000 families. These families come from all over the area, but many are from the colonias. Many households fall below the poverty line, are multi-generational, and are made up of mixed immigration status families. They've been hit particularly hard by this pandemic. This area has been poor for, uh, for generations, uh, underserved for generations, and right now COVID-19 just came to, to put it all together for us and, uh, and uncover the ugliness, right, or the unbalance that we have in this country of, of resources. That's Lupe's community organizing coordinator, Martha Sanchez. We got a call from a family, and there were like eight members and living in one room. And some of the members were infected with a COVID. Uh, how do we expect these people to have distance in their home? Off the main road, the streets are unpaved. A chalky dust hangs in the air as cars drive by. And there are no street signs, so I have to follow the car in front of me or I'll be lost. 
So right now I'm currently following Maria as she goes to distribute some more food for Lupe. There's still pallets and pallets of rice and beans and cleaning supplies and everything like that. So they're gonna make a few house calls. We stopped by one home to make the first delivery. Tiene COVID? So she just said that um, the person that they're delivering this food to has COVID and uh, they don't want me to go in there, which obviously. Maria drops bags into the beds of trucks on doorsteps or hand delivers them to folks outside. We're giving them a little bit of buffer with a box of, of household supplies. Lupe's communication coordinator, John Michael Torres. You know, these are this is nothing in compared to what they've gone through for decades, the neglect that they've gone through for, for decades, working, building this country, and, uh, and yet the country in this moment of, of crisis has pretty much said, hey, you're on your own. There's no, there's very little, if, if any, uh, protective net for, for you in this moment. Many here work essential jobs in construction and agriculture. Some have papers, others do not. Because of undercounts, they rarely receive the funding they need from local governments. And those non-citizens don't receive unemployment benefits or stimulus checks. This is the moment that shows that, that all of our, our health depends on our neighbor's health. We can't, we can't be living, living in you know, a, a good life and then our neighbors who blocks down are living in poverty. You know, It's going to catch up to us. And this is the moment that it's catching up to us. And what happens when that moment arrives? When statistics and data and probability all finally come home? What then can you do but hope? In Mission, Texas, outside of Mission Hospital, two dozen people stand socially distant, facing the hospital, raising their hands in prayer for the sick, the dying, and those tending to them. They are all members of the Church Jesucristo Levantando al Caído. Marta Gomez is one of the five pastors leading the prayers. Pastora Gomez says, We all came to be able to pray and to be able to help one another through prayer. It's important that we're united not just as a church, but also as a community to be uplifted by God. She tells me their community is strong and larger than it first appears. Pastora Gomez shows me her phone live streaming the prayer service. Over 22,000 people are virtually present all over the world. Motivated by their brothers and sisters around the world, the congregants sway slightly back and forth. They all wear masks, some with face shields and gloves. Sweat beads on their faces as they pray, but the heat only adds to their fervor. Sometimes we want to see things fulfilled in this moment, but we have to have faith. I'm going through a hard time, says Sidronia, a member of the church's prayer group. We're not using her last name because she is undocumented. I have diabetes, arthritis, a thyroid problem, and high blood pressure, she says. Sidronia has made her living making and selling tamales. But since the pandemic hit, no one's buying. She said she doesn't know how she'll make rent this month or be able to pay for her medication. I always ask God that he will be my rock and that he will help me. 
because honestly, it's awful. It's just so awful. We don't know what to do. But I thank God for what he has done for me. Do you know what would make me really happy, she says? If I had papers and could find a good job. If this virus gets me, I don't have money. What will my daughter do? She doesn't have papers either. Cideronia isn't the only one struggling. The group gave me a contact list before I left. Every story I heard, undocumented, multi-generational houses, single mothers, no income, underlying conditions, and yet many of them hold on to their faith and on to hope that things will change. Perhaps a lot of people couldn't understand it, Pastor Gomez says. When they hear it, they'll say it's crazy. In this situation, there are a lot of people without hope. But you have to believe in something to get through this, she says. A strong community is a powerful thing, and hope can be one of the strongest forces for good in this crazy world. Have hope, Pastor Gomez says. There is hope. There is hope. The Rio Grande Valley right now is running on hope. Dr. Melendez, during his endless shifts, trying to save as many people as he possibly can as this COVID surge crashes over them, he's running on hope. Hope that the next treatment will be the one that makes a difference. Hope that his old friend will survive. So as we were um, preparing to finish this episode for you, um, Dr. Melendez sent us another recording. Two days after putting in the chest tube and my lifelong friend, the nurse, um, he has continued to decline. His ventilator settings are much higher. He's now on two different agents to keep his heart going. And this morning, his kidneys stopped working. He's urinating frank blood and will be hemodialyzed. To this point, in the five months we've been doing this, our success rate of people who are on ventilators, as well as hemodialysis, is only 1%. The other 99%, the people die. So I expect for him to perish. I just uh, had to sit with that one for a minute. See, when Dr. Melendez started treating his friend, you know, running through that list of medications he would try and interventions he would make, he stopped himself. He paused and he asked his friend, how's your heart? How's your soul? I thought that was interesting. And so we asked him, why did he do that? It's not because I'm a beautiful person or I have sensitivities that other people don't. It's just that the moment is so intense 
that your priorities get set straight, even even an insensitive person is moved into into focusing uh, in this person's needs, which at this point is emotional, spiritual. They're afraid, and so if you if you call out the elephant in the room, and then people will say, "Yeah, absolutely, I'm afraid." I'm tired. I'm exhausted. What's my wife going to do? These are the responses that you get. This is a band of science. But in the end, it's the spiritual that sustains him through these heavy losses that bear down on his home, on the valley, like boulders, with no end in sight. It's hope. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and Michael Trevino. Special thanks this week to TPR's Reynaldo Leanos Jr. for his reporting. Our sound engineer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>